there is so much talent lying in the coach or the coaches that we don't tap into because they're unoptimized. So, you know, this won't surprise people, but anyone's been around pro sport, you know, the, the coaches have jet lag too. The coaches have sleepless nights too. The coaches uh, have all this emotional pressure. They, um, you know, all these different things, the sleeplessness, the loneliness, the, that impacts them too. And we do nothing to support that. And when I say nothing, Steve, I mean nothing, zero, zero dollars spent on that area of development, despite the fact that these are the people that are teaching our athletes how to perform on a day-to-day basis. Hi there, folks. It's Steve Ingham here and a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast, whether that's for the first time or if you're a regular listener. So I'm a sports and performance scientist and have supported athletes throughout my career towards the podium and have led and developed high performance teams both in sports and transferred some of those lessons from high performance into business too. And in these conversations, I I speak to performers, coaches, researchers, And I hope these discussions can help you wonder, maybe think differently, maybe cope or nudge you along with whatever you're working through right now. This week's guest is Cody Royal. Cody is the head coach of Australian Football League Team Canada. That's the men's national program for Australian rules football. Cody is also an author And I would say fast becoming recognised as a pioneering voice about a topic that previously just hasn't been communicated. And that is the reality of being a head coach. In his recent book called The Tough Stuff, he explores the challenges of coaching in elite sport, but specifically the dynamics and perspectives, the difficulties and the pressures of being a head coach And he ratifies his own feelings in conversation with a series of top coaches, too, who've had similar experiences, such as Dan Quinn of the Atlanta Falcons or Stuart Lancaster, formerly of England Rugby, to name just a few. I can't stress enough just how important the step change that Cody is bringing forward in communicating the demand on coaches There seems to me to be a disproportionate and unwarranted expectation and veracity of opinion, and a lack of support and empathy for the head coach. And it's Cody's petition that we all need to do a little bit better in support of this unique role. To give you a flavour of the book chapter titles that we delve into and build the conversation around, here's a couple of examples. Your fiercest rival is yourself. You're not a coach. Tactics don't matter. And chapter one is titled... Everyone thinks you're an idiot. And that's where I start this conversation. So, Cody, I'm just going to ask you straight off the, off the bat. Um, the first chapter of the tough stuff. Everyone thinks you're an idiot. <laughs> Discuss. No, <laughs> Really? Do you, do you think that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So just to provide a little bit of context here, the, the subtitle to the 
the book is Seven Hard Truths About Being a Head Coach and it's really directed at particularly elite coaches and so I'm talking specifically about head coaches and really, <laughs> well, my editor wouldn't let me not use that title but also there's a, a solid truth to it in that it's remarkable in especially professional sport that you can be this sought-after tactical magician that connects with players and um, you know is is highly sought after by all the biggest clubs in Europe or North America and then literally the the day after you get the job you become an idiot and everyone thinks that you're this buffoon that's just kind of flumping their way through uh, the role and everything is questioned every substitution is questioned every you know you've got the media coming after you about X, Y, and Z, you've got this and that. And so it's just this really bizarre career pathway where every step along the way, <laughs> you're, you know everything possible about that role. And then you get into the head coaching role and it completely flips. And so that's really what I was getting at is that, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's a unique role in that sense, a little bit like a CEO maybe. Okay. Is there any sense that um, there's a bit of that going on in your head as opposed to actual? Definitely, yeah. And, you know, the the lack of job security, lack of any security definitely plays into that. I mean, you know, there's that that adage, um, you know, show me the incentive and I'll show you the behaviour. And so if there's no guaranteed contracts, then I would probably be a bit neurotic as well. And so there's definitely that as a portion of it. But then also there's a reality to, and this is really what I want to point out is there's a reality to both insiders and outsiders just thinking that you're an idiot. Like I've had conversations with, I write about this in the book, you know, strength and conditioning coaches that have just met me at you know, I've come to watch training and they're working with the team and they just list out all the things the head coach did wrong in the previous season. And I was like, well, that's the person that actually invited me here and you've just met me and you've just dished all this this stuff. And so, you know, it, it's not just this always outsiders coming at the head coach. The reality is sometimes it's the assistant coaches. Sometimes it's the, the support staff that also have this idea that every decision that you make is the wrong decision and they've got all the answers. And yeah. so, again, it's it's a weird dynamic that I just wanted to point out. Yeah, I, mean, I, I can I can feel the sense of sort of loneliness to that to that word, those words. And um, I suppose as you point out, that sort of CEO, the CEO has to report upwards as you as you write about in the book. You've got to you've got to convince and convey upwards of the plan, but you've also got to convince sideways and downwards in a hierarchical term, you know, without sort of getting into the specifics of that. But you've, you've got to just, everyone's, everyone's sort of looking to you for the answers. And if, if what I'm getting from this is that there's a real isolation of, of your role, of you as a person, without having that supportive peer group. Say if you're in a team, if you're on the team, or if you're in a, an executive team, 
as opposed to the CEO, you're you're sort of huddled together a little bit. That's what I'm hearing from the from the words. Yeah, exactly right. And one of the great stories that comes out of the book that Dan Quinn gave me, who's the now former head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. So he was the coach of the team that the New England Patriots came back from, you know, whatever it was, 27, 14 down or whatever it was at uh, halftime and won. And, you know, Dan hadn't been a head coach at any level of football until the NFL. So, you know, he was he's a super switched on guy, uh, really emotionally intelligent uh, and was really paying attention when he started in the head coaching role. He said, the thing that stands out to me the most is that all of a sudden you're responsible for everyone's livelihood. And what he means by that is, and again, this is the NFL in a specific instance, it's not always like this, but every assistant coach now is tied to your performance. If you fail as the head coach, all their jobs go away, which means all their wives, children, they don't have an income um, or don't have that income. And then the rest of the staff, and it kind of falls down. And so you can start to see how, to your point, Steve, is this can become really isolating really quickly. Um, and that's just the staff. <laughs> then you've got all the players. Then you've got, yeah, up managing up. Then you've got all these different things and there's really nowhere f- for you to go or no one to really turn to that is going to understand that plight. Yeah, okay. It's, it's an interesting, just a theme. I could go into the specifics of the book, but I'm curious to sort of explore some of the, the sort of narrative around this. And you have a section on why you wrote the book. But could you just unpack that for us a little bit? Because I'm intrigued to sort of hear about the motivation because, because the book is, is so unique in that, in that regard that you don't have many people talking about these dynamics and these f- frustrations or these pressures as frequently perhaps as you should do. So you're, you're uniquely positioned to tell that story, but why did you? Yeah, it was an interesting one. I didn't really mean to write it, to be honest. Um, the first nugget was I spoke at Leaders in Sport in Las Vegas. So I was invited out there um, by the team and, and gave my presentation and they asked me to present on talent optimization. And so I actually presented on coach optimization. And the idea was that there is so much talent lying in the coach or the coaches that we don't tap into because they're unoptimized. So, you know, this won't surprise people, but anyone's been around pro sport, you know, the the coaches have jet lag too. The coaches have sleepless nights too. The coaches uh, have all this emotional pressure. They, um, you know, all these different things, the sleeplessness, the loneliness, that impacts them too. And we do nothing to support that. And when I say nothing, Steve, I mean nothing, zero. Zero dollars spent on that area of development, despite the fact that these are the people that are teaching our athletes how to perform on a day-to-day basis. And so I got on stage at at Leaders and, and that was my presentation. Why aren't we seen as talent? You know, why why do we punish our athletes for you know, breaking from their diet and then we go and 
we on on the way to the next meeting, we jump through the McDonald's drive through, and all the coaches are in the car, and we go and grab a Happy Meal each, right? And so, if we're all performers, if we see ourselves as performers, we should be in that group as well in terms of the coaches. Um, and so that idea kind of lay dormant for a little while. Again, it was a presentation. I ruffled some feathers. That was the intent of it. Um, some people took to it. Some people thought I was a nitwit and that's fine. Um, but then a couple of events happened in a row for me. Uh, I had a player take his own life in the, the team that I coach. Um, and then that was March last year. And then in April last year, oh no, sorry, February last year. And then in March last year, obviously COVID. And so all of those things kind of bundled together were the catalyst of the book. So I'm someone that has been through all of the challenges that are written about in the book. And so I can talk to them from a, an applied perspective. And really these are the stories of my friends. You know, a lot of my friends are head coaches and this is the stuff that we talk about when it's offline. And so, you know, it's not a story of, of ratting people out. It's, uh, it's just really portraying what coaches are really struggling with. And I think that COVID period where the whole sporting world shut down and everyone started, was sitting in their back garden thinking, geez, this might never come back. Like this league might collapse. My club might collapse. My livelihood might be over. All of everything that I've been building uh, might be done. Uh, people started to have some realizations about what they were struggling with and that they had been winging it and that they hadn't paid attention to the right things. And, and so I, yeah, there was a certain timeliness to it where I was like, all of these ideas bundled together, this needs to be a book and it needs to be a book now. Yeah. I, and I can, I can sense that sense oh, that idea of your, ex, your experiencing indirectly but but um within your the circle of your your team trauma and loss and and grief um that that perhaps might be propelling you um but who did you write it for so i wrote it for the the head coaching community it is supposed to be uh a handwritten letter to say you are not the only one going through this because I know that that is what goes through head coaches' heads. I'm the only one going through this and I'm stupid for struggling with this thing. It's it's a silly little thing and I'm a head coach so I, I shouldn't be struggling with it. And so this is me saying we're all going through that or we all go through that at various times. And it's okay. There's there's one section that I that I, I'm sent. It's coming to the forefront of my mind as you're saying that, and I love the subheadings. It really helps the flow of the book, and it and it it allows you to to sort of bounce along through these themes, which are quite profound. Um, and one is around slippery slope, and I sort of felt. At that point, I, I really sort of started to, uh, to question because you do beat yourself up a little bit during the book. You're sort of a bit vulnerable here, that slippery slope of, uh, you've got to do this for self-care. Look after yourself. 
Otherwise, there is a, a slippery slope or a downward spiral or a, you know, a, a vicious cycle, whatever you want to call it, that, that you could succumb to if you're not giving yourself a bit of a break, supporting yourself, giving yourself some time out, rest and recovery, or, or understanding these dynamics as they, as they unfold in front of you, because they're probably going to be unexpected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, this is just human behavior. You know, we, we retreat to what we've always known or, or what we believe to be true. And, you know, under times of extraordinary stress, that's where we go. And so for coaches, you know, that's uh, numbing and, you know, alcohol and, and, and things like that. And, and that can be an issue unto itself. And, you know, sometimes you don't know any different. That's the thing. You don't actually understand what you're going through at the time and maybe it only hits you afterwards or hopefully it hits you <laughs> at some point. But, um, yeah, that's what I was really I was really keen to explore that topic specifically around that slippery slope because it's potentially one of the untalked about truths of coaching that there's just this malaise over particularly head coaches and they're always grumpy and gruff and all these different things and so the answer is sitting right in front of us and it is self-care and it is creating space for that care and it is having conversations with people around the, the facility that look the coach can't be here 24 7 like you shouldn't be able to walk past their office at any time of day and see them in there it's just ridiculous and and so for me it's really a call to action for us to stand up as a community as a coaching community and say we are we need to take care of ourselves no one's coming to save us we're the ones that need to do it we need to say i need to be home at 6 p.m to have dinner with my wife and my newborn and that's final and i'm not going to watch more game film until 3 a.m because we all know that you don't learn anything at 2 a.m you're so so spent that you're not actually doing anything you think you are but it's really signaling um and so it might be better for us to go home and see our families and have some more wholesome personal time so what's your thoughts on on why this is the case why why are these expectations that the the swim coach has to be the first in the car park and the last to leave and and these antiquated pressures, working habits that that might have been relevant in the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. People might have gone, yeah, that's, that's kind of what we need. But why is that still current? Why is that still present? Fear is the answer. And, you know, part of it is what I talked about earlier with the lack of security. Part of it is the professionalism of the industry. You know, I've had some amazing conversations with coaches who've read the book and, you know, that has been their ethos. You know, they've signed a big contract. These are, you know, big uh, multi-million dollar contracts. And so it kind of forces you down this path. Well, I better not be outworked, right, because now there's $6 million attached to it. In terms of just volume as opposed to effectiveness and clarity of thought and innovation and decision making exactly yeah and so i think that 
drives the behavior. And then there's also a copycat syndrome at play. So, you know, if, you know, we can talk about Olympic sports, you know, if the Americans are doing it, well, we better not be outworked. So I, I have to, you know, team GB has got to be better than, than their swim team. So, you know, I've got to just put in the longest hours possible. Don't get me wrong. That's part of it. But what we've done is just extrapolated that out to be year after year after year with no breaks. We half-ass our recovery, you know, particularly in North America. These coaches all, like, go to the cottage for a week after the season, nine-month season, and then they'll go away for a week and then get into preseason. And so, yeah, it's just become this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And because everyone else is doing it, then you've got to go and do it. Um, and then part of it, I, I guess, is there's an outsider's perspective as well in that there is a perspective from everyone else in that building that the coach better be first in, otherwise they're not being effective. And I think we're better than that. I think we've thought our way through that. We're just waiting for someone to go first is my impression. Like we need a Steve Kerr or a Pete Carroll to go, I'm actually kind of going to work less hours but be a hell of a lot more effective. And once a team like that wins, I think everyone else gets to go. (laughs) We're we're just waiting for that first person to go through the wall. And the number of athletes that I've worked with, I've never, I've never really known one that's just sort of half cooking their training and, you know, no one's that talented to sort of get away with it. You have to put the graft in, you have to do the, do the work in that sense. If you're going to, get to the top of the mountain you're going to have to climb and that that sense of okay this is a big gig and I want to give it my all and I want to go all in on this um but potentially that that's that's just going too far it's getting to the point of fatigue or ineffectiveness or drain or burnout uh, as opposed to finding the sweet spot between periods of of pulses of hard work followed by deep renewal what we've done is we've conflated time spent with care. And so, you know, when you start to say, well, maybe going home earlier and seeing your family is the better option, people think, well, then I don't care. Like then I'm not grinding and I'm not hustling. And, again, I understand that this is elite sport. You have to work your ass off. There is no way around that. You know, these sports are are so developed and complex now that you do have to put the work in. What I'm saying is that hard work has gone too far. And we are surrounded by people whose job it is to be experts in human performance and human optimization who know that. We give those ideas to, to our athletes and say, you need to go home and rest and recover I'm going to stay and absolutely obliterate myself to the point where I can barely talk, I can't sleep and I can't think and I can't make good decisions, but you'll be okay because, you know, and so that's the dynamic I'm pointing out. We know all these secrets. We know that all of the secrets to human optimization, if we don't know them for sure, we're sure as hell researching them, but then we need to give those to the coaches so that they can make better decisions they can be sharper in games they can 
um, make, make uh, communicate better, more clearly, stronger, um, all the different things that we work on. We know all this. This is this is why I'm kind of laughing as I talk. It's like this is our job, yeah, human yeah. optimization. <laughs> yeah, it's an easy habit to, to fall into. And I remember sitting on a board um, and um, we were, it was a high-performance sport and we were talking about a strategy. We were start, starting to think about developing the kind of next phase. And we were just asked to do more and more and more. And I sort of turned around and sort of, I thought this would this would be quite a powerful way of of framing it to say, look, if we were a if we were an athlete right now, we'd be overtraining, and they just turned around and went, get on with it, <laughs> and yeah. that sense of we are so close to high performance, we live in high performance down the corridor. They are living and breathing these principles for effective cognitive physical performance, but we're not. <laughs> we're we're going to choose to ignore those <laughs> because because we seem to have different rules um, that might apply to certain categories of roles. It's always just baffled me that if we're talking about competence in the same way that we might do sprint ability, um, surely that's the, that's the Venn diagram or that's the balance that we've got to, got to strike. So um, do you, what, what do you do now when you, when, um, if someone makes a sarcastic comment and says, oh, you're having a half day now, are you? If you leave at half past four, do you just hand them the book? Is that what it was there for? Just sort of just, <laughs> go, there you go. I'm just emailing you the PDF now. Is that, is that your get out clause now? See my previous work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've had a bunch of pocket sized versions printed out and you know, I just keep them in the, in the, the back pocket to hand out to people. But, but yeah, it, you know what though? Steve, it is the most interesting thing is the reactions when you do point that out to other people, you know, whether it's meeting fatigue, like now we're seeing Zoom fatigue and all these different things that we didn't really know about, but we're starting to get a little bit of research into them and back-to-back meetings and cognitive load. And now you can start to actually talk about these things with people and they, they have their own lived experience of that. And so you know, you can really start to engage them in more interesting conversations about this because you can say, think about the worst day that you've had on Zoom. You might have had 12 meetings back to back to back. Think about how much the front of your head hurt after that experience. Now I want you to go and coach an NBA game (laughs) because that is what we're putting head coaches through. That's what they live through every second day for 82 games of a year plus jet lag is that feeling in their head and then you go, now go and make really good decisions in the public domain where the difference in winning and losing is going to be a last-second three-point shot and you're going to have to make the right substitutions and the right play calls at the right time after having those 12 hours of Zoom meetings. That's what we're putting people through. So now people go, oh, yeah, geez, that, that would be tough. You know, I, I had to go and lay down on the couch after my 12 Zoom meetings. I'm like, yeah, exactly. So I actually like that we're kind of all going through this together because now people have their own lived experience of it and can start to resonate with what we're talking about here. And so um, I, I love one of the, I can't remember which chapter it is now, but just one of the bullet points was just get 
full stop, some, full stop, sleep, full stop. <laughs> and <laughs> which is, which is, you know, I, 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 we should maybe publish a book that just says that. Um, but the um, parallel with something like sleep, um, when you just can't, you've done all the right things, you've had a transition routine, you maybe had some protein before you go to bed, you've, you've shut your emails off before you've started to settle down, you've done the, you've done the good work. Some, some particularly business executives that I've spoken to around that human performance, they've said, okay, that's all, that's all really good and well, but I could really do with a tactic when I have a, a rubbish night's sleep, but I still have to perform the next day. I can't just, I can't just speak to a head of state and say, could we, could we push the meeting back? I'm a bit tired. <laughs> it doesn't go, that doesn't go down that well. Um, how, have you developed some some specific tactics or routines that are helping you go from that fatigue state that that overload through to now I've got a I've got to create a game plan for for my team but but it's it really matters now but do you, do you have something in between that spaces or helps you transition or helps you step up yeah, and now that's what I'm doing. So I've had an opportunity off the back of the tough stuff to work one-on-one with a lot more coaches, head coaches, and we work through those things one-on-one now. So the reason that I wrote the book the way that I did, Steve, is that it doesn't give answers because there is no, you know, tar everyone with the same brush idea here is you know, these are the, the general things that, that we have to deal with. And now let's get to work doing the one-on-one stuff and figure out what those tactics and triggers are. Because what your trigger might be for sleep deprivation and needing to perform won't be the same as mine. And again, this is just what we, <laughs> what we know about humans who perform. We know that about our athletes. Uh, someone is on our team is going to be able to deal with that deprivation better than the next person. And so what's really interesting is those same outcomes that we have with athletes in that it's not the same play out the more and more head coaches I talk to. Some don't have an issue with not getting enough sleep or or the perception of not getting enough sleep. Some are actually really struggling with measuring their sleep. That knocks them off more the fact that they can look at their watch and go, I only got six and a half hours. I actually placebo feel worse because you've told me that I didn't get enough sleep. I could have convinced myself that I did if I didn't have the measurement. And so, yeah, it's really interesting going through that with each individual and working out how they react to different stimuli within that performance environment. Mm. Yeah, I, that's a common one around sleep. And just to riff off some of the detail there, I, I, um, I talk to a lot of people about sleep quite frequently. But I think that there's um, how did how well did I sleep is a very different question from how refreshed do I feel. Mm-hmm. How how well did I sleep? Well, I, I felt quite fragmented. I woke up about ten times. I looked out the window once, and you know, I got a bit hot at one one occasion but I'm actually quite refreshed. (laughs) That's a different question. How refreshed do I feel? Even though I had four hours sleep might actually be, wow, I must have had a good sleep. Anyway. Um, 
this, this is so, so interesting. So presents so many options to, to go in different directions with this discussion um, because it is almost unfamiliar territory to be able to discuss this openly in some mm-hmm. ways. Um, mm-hmm. How well prepared were you for these sorts of pressures? Tell me about what happened before you took on that head coach role. Did you have an assistant coach position where you were seeing what the next step looked like and therefore vicariously could visualize yourself in that role, understand the pressures, understand the roles, and also think I could cope with it this way and start to think tactically about how you'd manage. Yeah. So I, I'm an anomaly for my sport in that I'm now 36 and I've been coaching for 13 years. So, um, most people would be kind of wrapping up their careers at about my age, you know, they go home and play suburban or local level football and, you know, make a couple hundred bucks and have a great little social community. Uh, whereas I went the other tact and kind of fell out of love with playing and fell in love with coaching. And so, yeah, I mean, I was really lucky in that I had head coaching experience going into the national program. So I'd coached my local men's club team then was an assistant coach with the national team and then uh, assumed the head coaching role uh, after that but one of the things that you find is that there's really no full way to prepare yourself for what you're going to go through as a head coach all the different pressures all the phone calls all the uh, it, it all changes so I, I think it's really interesting in that, you know, even in that transition, assistant coach to head coach, assistant coach, there's the pressure's off. So you're, you're probably a lot more buddy-buddy with the players, with the athletes. Um, you know, you can go to the bars with them if they go out at night and, you, you know, you do a lot of one-on-one stuff with them. And then those skills don't translate because you can't do that as the head coach. There's a power dynamic that changes just with that change in one one word in your title. You're now the head coach. People sit up a little bit straighter when you enter the room. The athletes lift their weights a little bit harder when you walk in the gym. Um, you know, people would have experienced this in every walk of life. When the when the CEO comes on your floor, you button your shirt up properly and sit up straighter and enunciate differently. And, and all these different things. And so, you know, as the head coach, that's the same kind of thing that happens. And so um, that's on top of, you know, the loneliness we talked about earlier, the isolation, the, um, the, the paranoia, the, um, the emotional weight that you kind of take on, like you take on care of other people, um, whether that's, rational or reasonable I don't know you know Stephen Rolnick and I have had some conversations back and forth about that but uh, yeah so I was the best prepared I could be and I was still underprepared and I, I, I honestly don't think there's a way around it it's you have to have the lived experience right okay I I'm almost imagining a bit a bit like taking on headship head teacher principal for a school um, mm-hmm. where there's there's a training scheme 
that prepares you for that. It's almost you, you go through a specific qualification. And I remember speaking to my late father-in-law, who was a head teacher, but also trained head teachers. And, um, and he talked about, actually, there's, there's thousands of head teachers that have gone through the training scheme, but a very small proportion of them actually take a headship up. I said, oh, that's interesting. Why is that? He said, because the, the head teacher program prepares them for that role and in so doing puts them off. <laughs> so, so mm. I thought that was an interesting one where, oh, you, you're, you're struggling to recruit head teachers because you've actually explained what the role is. <laughs> you've actually <laughs> shown the, the reality of it. He said, yeah, exactly. Because when you step up, you, you've then suddenly got all the pressures put on your plate. And, um, and that is so different from the next stage down where it's a department. You don't have to make the decisions. Uh, uh, the buck doesn't stop with you. Um, I'm hearing parallels there. You maybe you need to be creating some sort of head coach training scheme. Maybe the tough stuff can be in a curriculum for it. Um, actually, it could be, couldn't it? it, it would, these chapters break down quite nicely, actually. These, these, these could be the, uh, the curriculum for that head coach training to put as many people off as possible and only the, <laughs> the ones that are really up for it to go through. Well, you've, you've hit on something there in that that's actually what we need. We need more head coaches to opt out. Um, you know, we there is still very much a power uh, accumulation thing going on where people think that, you know, that's what they've always wanted to do, but we need people to, to actually either experience it and go, you know what, I was actually better as, a, as an analyst or I was better as an assistant or... Um, and go back down the chain rather than people clogging up the top or the head coaching roles. Some of the people, like, I mean, I'm sure most can think about it, but they just get rolled out anytime there's a vacancy in head coaching. Like soccer is notoriously poor for this. And what it does is it it holds up the next generation that that come through to give someone their 40th appointment at a at the next football club, right? Like we can do better than that. So we actually do need people to kind of be scared off a little bit. <laughs> I think that would be healthy. Well, yeah, in, in the sense that, in the same spirit that you have created this this uh, voice around this area, but also encouraging people to reflect and um, and communicate about it. The 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 coach that's been in the fortieth position. Would make a would make a really interesting mentor if they can make sense of what they've experienced. They as a as a as a mentor and utility for somebody who's coming through and doesn't have experience for that. Um, we don't hear of that as a structure where people get in that role. And you talked about that isolation, but have a mentor and a couple of people that they can go to as as a safe pair of ears, if that's a phrase. I don't know if that's a phrase or not. Yeah. That's the structural change that. I am really campaigning for in that, you know, I, I think that, and I write a little bit about this in the book, the best training that I've had is in creating my own head coaching group. So I went and handpicked a bunch of coaches and we catch up every three or four weeks and we just talk about the plight of being a head coach and 
I'm talking everyone from, you know, professional college, high school sports, UK, Canada, the USA. There's there's no competition uh, amongst anyone. They're not uh, in the same leagues as each other. But we just handpick and and that allows us to be able to share properly what we're going through. And so it's created this little brotherhood of head coaches where everyone can resonate. We've had guys be fired from, you know, the top league uh, and not know what to do with themselves. We've had, you know, young coaches get hired. We've had all these different things. And so that brethren of just understanding more than anything and the ability to talk through, hey, I had to drop a player. I did it really poorly. Can can you guys workshop this with me um, so I get it right next time or, you know, my God, we keep losing by three. We just don't have enough. Do you guys have any ideas? That is the best training that I've ever done. And so to your point, I think there's real opportunities rather than keeping ourselves kind of siloed um, vertically, like let's get all the basketball coaches together and let's get all the soccer coaches together and let's get all the hockey coaches together. If we can do it horizontally and go across and bring all the head coaches together across uh, and have them have conversations with each other. That's where I think the dynamite is. And then one final point on that, Steve, is that the mentorship idea or the whatever you want to call it, director of coaching performance that is just a right-hand man or woman for the head coach, I'll, I'll leave this with you. Eddie Jones has that role. Pep Guardiola has that role. The best coaches in the world have someone designated. The only thing these people deal with is the coach's well-being and support. They have essentially no other responsibilities. They often don't have job descriptions. You make sure that the weight of what the coach is dealing with is, is sorted out. That is your job. You know what? If Pep Guardiola is doing it, we want to copy his tactics why aren't we copying the rest? Mm. Okay, so um, a couple of points there. So I, I try and pick back on, over them, but that specific one at the end there, that that has the same uh, feeling as a psychologist. I don't, I don't know how s- psychologists are set up specifically in North America, but but if you're operating as a psychologist in in the UK you will have somebody who acts as a mentor and as an outlet and provides you with supervision ongoing, even after you've sort of qualified. Uh, executive coaches have the same sense of of supervision and it's encouraged because otherwise you're creating sort of an emotional overload. You're bottling it up yourself. You're, you're dealing with some cases which are transition or trauma from people and you're taking it on board too. And so you're then having a third party support you in that way. Uh, that's what I'm hearing, a similar emotional load that requires that type of infrastructure to support that the person first and foremost. Yeah. So if you watch the Man City documentary um, on Amazon, you know, Manel Estiate is his name. He has a 30 to 45 second cameo, but he actually speaks to that. And he says, yeah, my job is to help Pep manage the weight of what he does. 
And that's all of what you've talked about, dropping players, cutting players, um, you know, what goes on in their lives. You do assume that because you genuinely care about them. If you didn't care, you wouldn't be in coaching. And so, yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, That's whether you want to call it a buddy system, whether you want to call it a mentor, whether you want to call it a coach of coaches, whatever you want to call it, those roles are going to be commonplace in the very near future to the point of they already are. Like, listen to who we're talking about. This is Guardiola and Jones. Yeah, they're they're, they're role models that people will copy in that sense. I need one of those in the same way that maybe 10 years ago they said, oh, they've they've got people videoing the match. We need one of those too. Now they're going to start saying, I need one of those because the best are doing it. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Okay, can I I go back to something you talked about, getting a a group of people together, brethren? That's a really interesting idea. Are you talking about getting people that could be vying for – the same job you're talking about people that could be competing along against each other at, you know in fixtures no uh, the opposite actually so okay the way that we built my group was that there was that safety so there's no competition amongst anyone so there's people from the same sports but they're not at the same levels so for instance in basketball we have someone at the pro level we have someone at the college level and we have someone at the high school level so um that then facilitates that psychological safety of the conversations that we can have we can have tactical conversations which we have had you know, we all, we're all from invasion sports, so we can share our defensive principles, our offensive principles, substitutions, whatever we want to talk about. We've had those sessions. And then, but the, the real benefit is in the off-field stuff and the ability for us to share uh, all the different things that head coaches go through. And then because everyone's a head coach, everyone just gets it like that. You know, again, it's like a CEO group. The reason there are CEO groups is because everyone in the room understands precisely what you're talking about. The numbers might be different and the industry might be different, but as soon as you say, yeah, what about that sleeplessness? Everyone in the room will go, yeah, yeah, I've felt that. I know exactly what that person's talking about. So we were very specific about that. I I didn't want competition i didn't want competitors i didn't want anyone sharing anything and the way that you can facilitate that is just to make sure that no one is competing genuinely and and that allows them to share properly because they won't in, in any other forum you know when when people get up at the coaching convention or the the industry convention they're up on stage and they're doing a q a they're not telling you anything close to what's actually happening or what they're actually working on. But when you get coaches in the same room and there's no competition, those guards come down a little bit and you can actually get into the, the meat of what we do. Hmm. It's a shame though, isn't it? Um, I was, I was kind of hoping you might've cracked that. Um, and just talking to David Martin from the Australian Institute of Sport in the last episode, um, the, the conversations that we've had over the years, Aussies versus Brits, what are we up to, what are they up to? I remember one 
it made a it made a national newspaper that we were advertising for a phd researching sleep at one point <laughs> they were oh the brits are gonna gonna sort sleep out um but i've always i've always been of the the view you the the things that we're dealing with the context the situation the people the talent the physiology the fast rich fibers versus whatever fibers it's so unique as a combination that even if you I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't be able to cut and paste that. You'd have to work just as hard to kind of almost apply that principle as you would do to have to kick that project off for the first time. So why not? Let's talk about it. <laughs> so when I saw your final chapter of, of the book, the tactics don't really matter. Why aren't we talking about them? And I, yeah, it's, it's it's a frustration of mine that actually we're not getting into some of that peer-to-peer conversation about what we're actually really up to so that we make sport better in that regard. Yeah. Silly, isn't it? I'm idealistic, really, and I'm probably too much. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's an essence of competition there that is also kind of addictive. I agree that it goes a little bit too far and that, we don't really need to protect those tactics as much as we do because to the point in the book is they don't matter as much as we like to think they do. Um, The ability of the team to execute whatever tactics you choose is really what's key and um, those can be anything. You know, you can win invasion sports any way you choose. You can be super defensive, you can be super attacking, you can be tall, you can be short, you can be fast, you can be slow and lumbering but physically dominant. You can, whatever you pick, you can win that way. And so that's my point. And, and, um, but that connection um, and, and the implementation of the idea is really what's important. And, yeah, I, I mean... We might get there where we start to share a little bit more the the tactical information. Uh, I know there were some things that went on, like I know the Crusaders and Leinster did a war games um, exercise during COVID, like they would never really play against each other. And so, you know, the coaching staffs got together and, and did live war games against each other. Here's how we prepare against you. Here's how, you know, here. And then, you know, what if the score was you know, 13, 10 at half time, what adjustments would you make? All that sort of thing. So there is maybe a little bit more of that going on, but probably not as much as there should be because to your point, the implementation of those ideas is what's important. And then mm-hmm. the ability of the team to actually carry them out, which is coaching. <laughs> That's what we do. Yeah. And and equally, I can counter my own point there. Um, some Some people have... I've said, and I think this is an interesting one, where if if I was publishing an article or even of a blog, for example, around a certain area or talking about a certain thing, it's provoking thought in the rivals. <laughs> it's getting them to think more progressively or they're doing that. So we maybe we could do this or something like that, which I understand that. But I, I think it's, it's too jingoistic. It's too um, focused on, I suppose, the... the um, your particular patch and protecting it too much but um so okay so if we can't get 
rivals talking necessarily, but what could, within a team, what would you like to see change? What would you like to see from the CEO, the sports science staff, the conditioning staff, in better support of the head coach in the future? What are the sorts of recommendations? If people are listening and hold those roles, what's your advice to them? Yeah, the it's an easy one for me. We talk endlessly and again, we get up on stage and there's all sorts of platitudes given to like, we'll do anything to win. And that's bullshit because what we've just had an hour conversation about the fact that we haven't even thought about any sort of optimization around the people that are actually teaching and preparing the athletes for the game. So we're not doing everything we can to win. Um, and, and that really flows up to, you know, the boardroom level where the, the lack of understanding of coaching is clear because you can see the turnover and you see the, you know, we're, we're committing to this coach for three years and we're going to give them the time and then, you know, two losses in, they're, they're out the door. And so, you know, what I'm really calling for is, a little bit more understanding, a little bit more empathy and a little bit more considered thought going into coach optimization and coach performance. And then we can start to have the conversation about we're doing everything we can to win. But until you actually get to the person that probably has the largest impact on that actual winning, until you optimise that person where we're not even close to where we think we are and so you know I think we need to kind of go back to the drawing board a little bit and and really think that through and and again like we've talked about Steve like there's there's structural things that we can put in place there's you know there's mentors there's um the the Manel Estiates and Neil Craig's of the world that can just be that right hand person um there's uh, there's education that we have in place you know there's new badges that are coming out i know the afl has just introduced a new level for their elite coaches so level four is now that extra little bit you know all the pressure all the media all the psychology um so there's traditional education and then i think there's really the the changing of attitudes that comes along with that. So like structural education and then changing of attitudes, it should be, you know, the coach is gone at 8 p.m. and you'll never see them in the office after that. That's okay. Oh, I don't need to talk to them today. It's fine. Like my thing can wait till tomorrow. And rather than this constant barrage of they've always got to be there for if their car's not the first and the last in the car park, then they're shortchanging us. That's just not the case and we, we need to move past that. So long way of answering is there's a lot that we need to do, but, you know, structural, educational and then attitude, I think are the three that I would probably go with first. Yeah, okay. So that actually requires probably the that, that empathy word that you talked about is is a specific understanding and and spend time with each other <laughs> observe what what's going on i think that is a, that's 
perhaps been one of my biggest head slapping moments as a sports scientist of thinking, I think I know how I'm working with a coach until I've coached. <laughs> when I've done that, then I'm suddenly seeing the world through a different lens. And now looking back at what I've previously done and thought, oh, I, I was hassling, I was annoying. I was pressing too many ideas or confusing things, making things too complex or not seeing the bigger picture. And equally for the CEO to be able to to do the same too, to understand those pressures so that they're better placed to be able to make the, the judgments about what's in best interest for the club because they understand what the coach is going through. One of the unintended benefits that really the audience has told me about the tough stuff has been that they can now give something to the CEO or even their players. Actually, I've had a bunch of coaches say, I've bought copies for all of the players so that they can start to understand and put words around what I'm going through. And so when I give a grizzled response or when I look like I'm about to fall over because I haven't been to bed, like this is why. And and it's so I, I honestly didn't intend that to be something that the book was for. Um, again, I, I wrote it for the head coaches just to know that everyone's struggling with the same thing. But if it's then able to maybe provide a little bit of that empathy or at least provide that thought that actually as a CEO, I should come down from my ivory tower and actually go and spend time with this person and see for myself. Yeah, I can start to empathise a little bit more and, and kind of maybe give them a little bit of a break. I think that's we're on the right path there. That's not the answer, but we're on the right path. Yeah, okay. Um, one of the, if I can just sort of wrap up a little bit, one of the final questions I've got for you is is about chapter four, which is you're not a coach. And to me, that's, when I've read it, it's so profoundly important to recognise that. But, but, seems to be so hand in glove with taking on that role and that mantra of or and position when when you assume that role there's a status which probably flares a bit of ego which probably means that people are adopting behaviors and and starting to see themselves sort of that that eagle leader standing on the the, the touchline barking orders whatever it might be um but that identity getting so wedded to that specific job description as opposed to still nurturing and 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 caring for them as a person as much as anything when i've spoken to previously to sort of managers associations in the uk um they've talked about people who've either been sacked um and they have to sort of pick up the debris afterwards and a lot of their work it tends to be around the legal side of it but actually should be more about the rediscovering their identity. They also comment that after two months off, they've they've stopped being grey and have, <laughs> their hair colours restored. Um, but yeah, what what motivated that specific bit? Did you feel a detachment of your identity to the role, and then have to sort of rework to 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 pull it back? Yeah, well, I think this is a really common human thing for us in the West is that we are detached from probably our, our real identity and we've attached it to 
that I went to Harvard or that I went to Oxford or that my job title is this or that I work for this company. And that's the point of you're not a coach is you're none of those things. You're, um, you're a son, a daughter, a husband, a wife, a, you know, more uh, holistic, whole, healthy human things first and you get to be a coach and you get to be a CEO and you get to work for Google. But it's that detachment that we've really seen, particularly in coaching, that I think is troublesome. And, yeah, I mean, one stark example that stands out in the book is, you know, an NFL head coach who said that his win-loss record would be on his tombstone. And my point is, what a terrible tombstone. It should say loving father, husband and son. And if you, like if you've misread the situation and think that your win-loss record should be on your your tombstone, like we, we really do need to have some conversations about this. I get it. Like, don't get me wrong, Steve. No one loves Aussie rules football more than me. I've been obsessed with it my whole life. I get up at, 3 a.m., 5 a.m. in Toronto and watch games live in Melbourne because I can't even bear to, to watch them slightly delayed. I, I get it. I get the obsession, but that's not who I am. And so, you know, the, that's really the point of the, the, um, the chapter title, you're not a coach, and then the first subtitle is you're a person that coaches. And so... I think it's an interesting journey for coaches to go on to really explore who they really are. And what you find is when you find that and you can bring that to your coaching, your coaching is actually more effective. So when you can bring yourself to your job and you're not hiding elements of yourself and, you know, the players on your team love that you're a father and love that you're a, a husband and that you go and cook your wife dinner, it becomes a, a lot stronger of a connection. You're more of a human to them. You're not just this thing that does stuff for you. You're a human being. And and there's case after case and, and so many coaches who've found a way to bring more of themselves, their actual selves to work and the teams and their coaching have thrived. And so that's what I'm hoping more of us can get towards. Mm. That, that's an interesting perspective of um, of seeing the human behind the decision making. In that sense, of uh, I'm, I'm much more likely to accept and recognise your your decision if I can see you acting humanely <laughs> in, in other aspects of your life. That that. I, could, I hadn't heard that before, that, that utility of that uh, work-life blurring almost. If you're always on and intense, I'd imagine that a team will just switch off a little bit. <laughs> if it's always really super noisy, that there's no distinguishing uh, variation in the tone. Full on, all the time, let's go. People are going to hide and just get a little bit of, you know what, I'm not going to bother as much. But if you have got that that light and shade of okay, here's here's me being chilled out, 
meet my children, friends, let's have a barbecue, etc. But then now I feel really passionately about this. There's, there's a gear to that where people are moving through to say, now this is important and that will probably spark more engagement and, and recognition that, yeah, th- we need to be on it now because the coach is behaving th- profoundly differently in that sense. Yeah. In my first book, uh, Where Others Won't, I, I write a lot about this and there's a whole chapter on what I call contextual leadership. And it's really what you just described there is, yeah, when you are consistently rah, rah, rah and um, or angry or, you know, yeah, always driving just at the same level, it starts to become white noise. And so this is why I like the conversation that we're having now around, we call it a toolbox. And, you know, I propose it as a sliding scale in that, you know, it's not, carrot or stick it's carrot and stick and there's a a sliding scale in between that and we actually need to be able to use all of the different functions and styles available to us at various times to to get the desired result and so what I'm cautious of is saying like coaches need to have a style they don't they need to be themselves and have agility in their coaching to be able to be command and control sometimes because there's just a reality that sometimes you have to do that and sometimes you need to dig in in a halftime talk and, you know, to use an Eddie Jones-ism, like use the hairdryer. That gets results. But if that's all you've got, you're in big trouble. And so that's why I like the idea of it being a sliding scale is you can move up and down based on what the team needs and and you use your kind of intuitive coaching uh, and, and observation to say, I think we need this now. And when you get it right and you're sliding between all the, you know, what they need and getting them what they need at the right time consistently, that's when you're looking at real elite performance. So you can ease off when they need when they don't need anything and you can grab them by the scruff of the neck and drag them along with you when it's February in Stoke and it's raining and and you can just feel that they're just off. Sometimes they're going to need that coach to come in and go, all right, I'm going to take control now. Let's go, lads. Like, let's go over the wall. We just need a point here. Like um, you've got to have all of that. I love the fact that your reference point for hardship was a cold night in Stoke. <laughs> that's, that's bringing that message home as much as anything. Um, if I just sort of step out the, the conversation for the podcast, Cody, is there anything else you'd want to bring up? Um, I've, I've sort of raised a couple of thoughts that are a bit philosophical as much as the specifics of the, of the book, but is there anything else you'd want to, have a chat about at all that you think might be worth adding to the conversation? No, I think this has been a really healthy conversation in general. And, and I think, you know, getting away from the specifics is is actually what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get us back into conversation around this. So rather than, you know, coming in with, here's a replicable eight week program for every coach to do, why don't we just have some conversations about this? And and this is why I love doing this with you 
is uh, I think we need to have the conversations first. Let's recognise that we have a little bit of an issue here and that we can do better and get all the right minds and all the right voices to the same table and figure out what we're going to do. So, um, yeah, no specifics from me, but, uh, yeah, I'm really happy to put my hand up and be the person that will drive these conversations um, and then we'll figure out what we're going to do about it. But let's talk about it first. Yeah, and, and I just want to say, I guess, thanks. But but also, it doesn't, it doesn't always feel right, right to say congratulations. There is a sense of a profound transformational uh, message to this book. And um, there's a, it's, so, it's so close, but so different from like a coach's autobiography. This is what I did. This is what happened. This is what they said. This is at the heart of that role and, and sort of laying it bare, which has, which is such an important step for people to hear that and understand it. And if I'd encourage everybody to pick up the book and, and, and read it, but also imagine themselves in that role as much as anything, because that's critical for us to to create create those conversations or create a different behaviour between people in support. So, no, thank you for writing the book. It's it's truly pioneering. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And yeah, I was very cognizant of uh, trying to get to to that point and, and stripping away all the uh, all the trophies and all the cool stories about having a pint with Gaza and all that sort of stuff, and say like you know, that's cool. Um, but there's also this other thing that we, we really do need to, to deal with. And, you know, maybe just to round out this conversation is there's a perfect example. there talking of like autobiographies in that uh, I just missed Arsene Wenger's autobiography coming out before I went to press. And so for all the cool stories, um, the word lonely or loneliness is in there 31 times in Arsene Wenger's autobiography. So, there you go, is there's so many cool stories in there. I'm a lifelong Arsenal fan, uh, but we d- we shouldn't gloss over the fact that that word is in there so many times amongst all those yeah. amazing well, stories. That's, um, that, that in itself, I hope that we can kind of look back at this sort of conversation in years to come and, and look back and think, yeah, it was very different then. It's now changed. It's now moved forward. I hope... And I hope that that's, this is the start of something um, amazing. So, Cody, thank you so much for the conversation. Oh, thanks for having me on. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Cody. Give him a follow on Twitter at Cody Royal, C-O-D-Y-R-O-Y-L-E. You can follow me on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and the wider Supporting Champions stuff at support underscore champs. We're also on LinkedIn and Instagram too, so give us a follow there. If you're enjoying these podcasts, then please do give us a review on iTunes. It really helps the show. It also helps people that might be interested in the podcast to actually discover it. So that'd be great if you could just spend a couple of minutes telling us what you reckon. Music.